brushed your teeth? Mm-hmm. And you fed your fish? Yeah. Okay. And you got your glass of water? Yeah. Anything else you need before bed? No. Okay. You ready for your bedtime story? Yeah. All right. Let's get in bed. Okay. <sighs> Basically, the idea for this podcast came to me because I was thinking about children's stories and how messed up a number of them are in so many ways. A number, most of them, most of the children's stories that we don't stop and think about, if you actually pay attention to what they are, they're hella jacked up. I think a lot of people don't realize how twisted these fairy tales are because they're only aware of the ones made famous because of Disney. I'd agree with that, yeah. And they have been very much sanitized from their original form, what people call the Disneyfication, not only of the tales, but of kind of society as a whole. That's true. I mean, my parents were not believers in television or movies, and I grew up only reading. I actually got an original copy of Hans Christian Andersen's tales, and it was thick. It was like Bible thick. And the the original non-Disneyfied versions of these stories are incredibly grim. I was taken aback as a child. Of course, I read the whole thing cover to cover, but I was like, I, I could even tell then the original versions versus I would encounter more sanitized and cleaned up versions in later books. Uh, and I was kind of taken aback. That's what we were giving our kids to grow up on back in the day was this really violent stuff. Yeah, if you look back on the Hans Christian Andersen tales and all the original stories from the Brim brothers, all these stories are much darker and laden with mutilation, mm-hmm. dismemberment, cannibalism, homicide, and all these acts were often inflicted on the children by their parents or their guardians. And we can agree that these stories weren't necessarily sanitized. De- definitely not. You might be wrong, though. How could they get any worse than what I read? Those were the, those I read the unsanitized versions. They were grim. They were, but also they were not. Uh, they could be grimmer than Grimm's fairy tales? How could they possibly be grimmer? Well, most versions of Grimm's stories that we know aren't even the original versions of the stories. Even though they are more twisted and violent by our modern standards, Jacob and Wilhelm Grimm started sanitizing these stories long before Disney ever got their hands on them. What? Yep. The stories you know as the Grimm's stories are the sanitized versions of the stories how they were inc- they brutal birds were plucking out eyes and that's the sanitized version yeah when the grim brothers came out with the first edition of kinder und hausmarschen or children's and household tales back in 1812 the book was intended to chronicle the German oral tales that people exchanged while they worked. Huh. Okay. What was going on in their time was they and the other intellectuals 
feared that these stories were disappearing because industrialization was eliminating a number of the domestic tasks, all the repetitive work that people would do and share these stories while doing this work. Interesting. I didn't know that. In the introduction to their first edition, the Grimm's asserted that almost all their material was collected from oral traditions of their region and is purely German in its origins. And no details have been added or embellished. But pay no mind to the fact that most of these stories weren't even of German origin and had been written down in other forms hundreds of years earlier. The original intent for their collection of stories was to entertain adults and was never intended for children. However, due to bad reviews and poor sales, they decided to ditch their dedication to the original oral stories and rewrite them for children because children's books were selling far better. Okay, that actually makes a lot of sense because if you think about it, the original stuff does seem much more slanted to adults. But if you're putting forth anything in terms of a creative endeavor, you want people to be able to purchase it. So the fact that they had to switch it from adults to kids because that's what was selling more actually makes sense. Huh. All the stories that people attribute to the Grimm's, they're thinking of their second edition stories, not even the first edition. The first edition was horribly written because they wrote them down basically verbatim as people were telling them to them. After that, they embellished the hell out of the stories. Wow. Huh. Okay. Not only did they do away with much of the sex and some of the violence of the original stories, they dropped a number of stories from the collection altogether. Stories with names like The Hand with the Knife, The Murder Castle, and one of my favorites, The Children Who Played Slaughtering. These are grim stories you have never heard of, right? I have not heard of any of those, no. Because they were stricken from the book after the first edition and all other subsequent editions never made any mention of them. They sound like the titles for bad B-horror movies. And they were kind of like B-horror movies in The Children Who Played Slaughtering. It's a story where two brothers see their father slaughter a pig and when he leaves they decide hey I'm going to play butcher you be the pig one of the brothers takes a knife and slices the neck of his younger brother their mother is upstairs giving a bath to their younger sibling she sees what happens down in the yard she comes down and is so enraged she pulls the knife from the dead boy and starts attacking his brother with the knife thereby killing him as well Then the mother goes back upstairs to check on the child that was taking the bath, finds that in her absence, the child has drowned, (sighs) is so distraught, she kills herself as well. Then when the father comes home, finds everyone dead and is so saddened that eventually dies of his sadness as well. Yeah, Yeah, that's a a real refreshing light piece. That's not going to linger with you. Yeah, gee, I wonder why that wasn't selling well. Yeah. However, as bad as these unedited versions of the stories must seem to us, 
they're much tamer than their precursors. The farther you go back, the more graphic the stories become and are often filled with strange morals. In the earlier versions of Red Riding Hood, for instance, the wolf had Red eat the grandmother's flesh and then undress, throw her clothes into the fire and get into bed with him before he eats her and the story ends. I'd almost heard that version. I have heard a version of her having to burn each article of clothing. And there's this whole line of dialogue where the wolf is in the bed pretending to be the grandmother. And it's like, burn that, you won't need that. Burn that, you won't need that. And then she ends up naked in the bed with the grandmother as the wolf, and then the wolf eats her. But I didn't hear the version about eating her grandmother's flesh. Yes, in some earlier oral versions of the story. And the woodsman doesn't bust in and kill the wolf and save her and the grandmother. The story just ends after the wolf eats her. So the moral of the story is don't get naked and crawl into bed with people as a young woman because it will end poorly for you. Pretty much. It's, it's basically a morality tale warning young girls against talking to men who are trying to chat them up for sex. Uh, okay. In the earliest known printed version of the story written by Charles Perrault in 1697, after the wolf consumes the girl, the author provides this warning. From this story, one learns that children, especially young lasses, pretty, courteous, and well-bred, do very wrong to listen to strangers. And it is not an unheard thing if the wolf is thereby provided with his dinner. I say wolf, for all wolves are not of the same sort. There is one kind with an amenable disposition, neither noisy nor hateful nor angry, but tame, obliging and gentle, following the young maids in the streets, even into their homes. Alas, who does not know that these gentle wolves are of all such creatures the most dangerous? The first written version of Sleeping Beauty, titled Sun, Moon, and Talia by G.M. Battista Basile, in 1634, has the most disjointed moral I think I've ever seen. Or would that be heard? Or read? If someone was telling the story to you. The story goes like this. It's the essentially the same Sleeping Beauty story. She plucks her finger on a piece of flax and goes into a coma. Everybody thinks she's dead her father can't bring himself to bury her, so instead puts her in one of his country estates where she lays in state until a king is out hunting one day, comes upon the house, finds her unresponsive, tries to wake her up. Her being unresponsive, he decides to rape her. She gets pregnant from him raping her, and he leaves Nine months later, she has the children still asleep. The children are crawling around all over her. They're hungry, but instead of attaching on to her breast to nurse, one of the children sucks the piece of flax out of her finger, thereby waking her back up. She suddenly is awake, realizes she's a mother of two twins now, who she names Sun and Moon. She nurses them and they're living in this cottage until the king comes back, maybe wanting seconds, 
finds... I remember that unconscious hot piece of ass. I think I'm going to take another pass at that. Well, if you think about it, a lot of these stories have men sexually assaulting unconscious women. That's true. He finds her is overjoyed that they are a happy little family now. And I guess she just accepts that, hey, I came along and raped you while you were unconscious all that time and knocked you up. They're happy, except he's already married. Oops. So he comes and visits them here and there. However, one night he yells out their names while sleeping. His wife hears the names, gets curious, so asks his secretary what's going on. The secretary, I guess knowing all his affairs, tells her, hey, he's got this other family in the woods. The wife orders that the kids be brought to the castle and tells the cook, to kill the kids and she's going to serve them to the husband for dinner. The cook feels bad, hides the children and instead cooks two lambs and serves those to the king. But the queen thinks that the king is eating his bastard children and kind of teases them the whole time they're having the feast. After this, she orders that Talia be brought to the castle. She builds a huge bonfire, is going to burn her alive. But before Talia gets into the fire, she starts wailing loudly. The king comes, sees her, is like, what's up? And everything comes out. The queen tells him, ha ha, you ate your children. And the cook comes and he's like, well, not really. The kids are safe. Here they are. So the king then orders the queen and his secretary be burned alive for their betrayals. And he and Talia get married, and everybody lives happily ever after. So it's a sweet story. When you get raped while you're unconscious in a coma, you're going to end up falling for your rapist, being acquiescent about being his side piece, and then being totally chill with the fact that he burns his previous wife alive, and then everybody lives happily ever after. Yep. Uh, And what do you think the moral of the story is? Don't rape unconscious people. No. No? The last line of the story, which is the moral, states, He who has luck may go to bed, and bliss will rain upon his head. What's that have to do with burning people alive and raping unconscious people in comas? Nothing. That's why I said it's the most disjointed moral I've ever seen in one of these stories. You know what? That's true. Now that I think about it, the earlier versions of these, when I got that original book, they all had morals at the end, at the end of each horribly jacked up story where you were like, this is so violent and messed up and everybody's suffering. And then they would put a little motto at the end of it. Okay. And I, I never questioned it. And the motto was often done in like rhyme as well. And sometimes it didn't really seem to apply to the story at all. Yeah. After doing all this research into fairy tales and some of the really strange origins to these tales, it gave me the idea that I should see how my daughter reacts to these early fairy tales by reading her one before bed. Hence, the rest of this episode is going to be me reading her a bedtime story. I've never even heard a reaction podcast before. That's really cool. Hopefully, it will turn out well. I have no idea. I'm going to read the story to her and see what she thinks. I found some of the earliest written fairy tales collected in an Italian book called The Facetious Knights of Straparola. It was written in 1550. 
Interestingly, almost every single story in this book is included in the Grimm's tales. Again, so much for them being authentically Germanic. The one I chose was the only one not retold by the Grimm's, but has many similarities to Snow White, Cinderella, and a number of other fairy tales. I'll be interested to see if you can catch those common threads. So this was the OG story and it got chopped up into parts and divided up into other lighter versions of fairy tales. Or just has common elements to those, like the queen demanding a piece of a young girl as proof of her death. Uh. Also, a bad stepmother and ugly stepsisters. Yeah, that's a really common theme. Hmm. So, settle in, get comfortable, turn the lights down low, and get ready for your bedtime story. Yay! And now, a word from our sponsor. Previously on Dirty Talk After After Hours. hours. Yeah, you ready for this final volley? I'm ready. Let's let's do do it. All right, hunker down. Oh, shit, it looks like they're regrouping. Ah! What are they doing over there? Oh, crap! Incoming! After Hours, available exclusively on Patreon every Monday morning. Hey everybody, this is Chris. And Rain. And if you do want to join us for the Dirty Talk After Hours podcast, we would love to have you along. It's a weekly podcast that we do on Patreon. Go to patreon.com backslash dirty talk podcast and we'll give you an earful each and every Monday morning. Both of your ears full. Yes. Two ears full every Monday morning. Sometimes we go on adventures. Sometimes we talk about the weird news of the day. It's a never ending party, my friends. Join (laughs) us. So if you want to support this podcast and encourage us to keep doing the awesome job we're doing and get bonus episodes every week, go to patreon.com backslash duty talk podcast. See you all there.
tonight. I will be reading you a story from 1550. That's like 500 years ago. Yes, almost 500 years ago. So they didn't have TV in this story? No, no TVs. No Roblox? No Roblox. Oh, that must have been very boring. They had rocks to play with. Um... No, I'm kidding. They had wooden toys. All the kids played with wooden things. Everything back then was made out of metal, wood, or rock. Huh. Okay, then. The title of the story is Bianca Bella and the Snake. What kind of name is Bianca Bella? Because they basically took two very good names, Bianca and Bella, and merged it together and created one terrible weird name. I'm sorry that you have such a negative reaction to her name. If you ever met her, you would let her know. Uh, yeah. Next time, I'll try and find you a story with a better main character with their name. I don't know. You can call her Bianca if you want. Okay. Bianca Bella and the Snake by Giovanni Francesco Straparola. Right? Is that how you pronounce it? Straparola? Okay. It starts with this moral, and I don't think this moral has anything to do with the rest of the story. It goes like this. It is praiseworthy or even absolutely necessary that a woman of whatever state or condition she may be should bear herself with prudence in each and every undertaking she may essay. For without prudence, nothing will bring itself to a commendable issue. And if a certain stepmother of whom I am about to tell you had used it with due moderation, when she plotted wickedly to take another's life, she would not herself have been cut off in divine judgment in such fashion as I will now relate to you. Okay. How do these stories start? Once upon a time. Exactly. Once upon a time, not many years ago, there reigned in Monferrato a marquis called Lumberico. Very puissant, both on account of his lordships and his great wealth. But wanting in children to carry on his name, he was forsooth mighty anxious for progeny. But this bounty of heaven was denied to him. Now one day, it chanced that the Marcianus, his wife, was walking for her pleasure in the palace garden, and being suddenly overcome by sleep, she sat down at the foot of a tree, and slumber fell upon her. While she slept gently, there crept up to her side a very small snake, which, having passed stealthily under her clothes, without arousing her by its presence, made its way into her body, and by subtle windings penetrated even into her womb, and there lay quiet. Um... Yes? So she has a snake baby? Well, not a snake baby yet, but the snake crawled into her womb. And is biting her baby? Well, she doesn't have a baby yet. Oh. And it's gonna be her baby? We'll see. Before a long time had elapsed, the Marchioness, with no small pleasure to herself, 
and with the highest delight of all the state, proved to be with child. And when the season of her lying in came, she was delivered of a female child, round the neck of which there was coiled three times something in the similitude of a serpent. When the midwives who were in attendance on the Marchioness saw this, they were much afraid. But the snake, without causing any hurt whatsoever, untwined itself from the infant's neck and winding itself along the floor and stretching itself out, made its way into the garden. Now when the child had been duly cared for and clothed, the nurses having washed it clean in a bath of clear water and swathed it in snow-white linen, they began to see, little by little, that around its neck was a collar of gold. <laughs> okay. Yeah, that's just very weird. So the snake pooped gold on her? I don't think the snake pooped gold on her neck. It's just a mark of where the snake was. Oh. Okay. Fashioned with the most subtle handiwork was this collar of gold. So fine was it, and so lovely, that it seemed to shed its luster from between the skin and the flesh, just as the most precious jewels are wont to shine out from a closure of transparent crystal. And moreover, it encircled the neck of the infant just as many times as the little serpent had cast its fold thereabout. How come the snake survived in her stomach for such a long time? Because it's a fairy tale. Things like that don't happen in real life. Okay. Magic. Okay. If that's the only question you have about this story, then I'll be surprised. Okay. The little girl, to whom, on account of her exceeding loveliness, the name of Bianca Bella was given, grew up in such goodliness and beauty that it seemed as if she must be sprung from divine and not from human stock. When she had come to the age of ten years, it chanced that one day she went with her nurse upon a terrace, from whence she observed a fair garden full of roses and all manner of other lovely flowers. Then, turning towards the nurse, who had her in charge, she demanded of her what garden that was which she had never seen before. To this the nurse replied, that it was a place which her mother called her own garden, and one, moreover, in which she was wont often to take her recreation. Then said the child to her, I have never seen anything so fair before. I had fain go into it and walk there. Then the nurse, taking Bianca Bella by the hand, led her into the garden. And having suffered the child to go a little distance apart from her, she sat down under the shade of a leafy beech tree and settled herself to sleep, letting the little girl take her pleasure the while in roaming about the garden. Bianca Bella, who was altogether charmed with the loveliness of the place, ran about, not here and not there, gathering flowers, and at last, when she felt somewhat tired, she sat down under the shadow of a tree. 
Now scarcely had the child seated herself upon the ground when there appeared a little snake which crept up close to her side. Bianca Bella, as soon as she saw the beast, was mightily alarmed and was about to cry out when the snake thus addressed her. Cry not, cry not. I beg you, neither disturb yourself nor have any fear, for know that I am your sister, born on the same day as yourself and at the same birth, and that Samaritana is my name. And I now tell you that if you will be obedient to what I shall command you, I will make you happy in your life. But if, on the other hand, you disobey me, you will come to be the most luckless, the most wretched woman the world has ever yet seen. So the snake is blackmailing her? I guess the snake is blackmailing her, telling her, you obey me and I'll give you all the nice things, but if you don't, then really bad things are going to happen to you? Oh, well, if someone ever blackmails me, I tell you guys. Yeah, well, tell me if anybody blackmails you. Definitely. I appreciate that. Hopefully, we'll never have to deal with that. Okay. Therefore, go your way now without fear of any sort. And tomorrow, cause to be brought into this garden two vessels, of which let one be filled with pure milk and the other with the finest water of roses. Then you must come to me by yourself without companions. When the serpent had gone, the little girl rose up from her seat and went back to seek her nurse, whom she found still sleeping, and having aroused her, she turned with her to the palace without saying aught of what had befallen her. And when the morrow had come, Bianca Bella chanced to be with her mother alone in the chamber, and the mother remarked that the child bore upon her face a melancholy look. Whereupon she said, Bianca Bella, what ails you that you put on so discontented a face? You are wont to be lively and merry enough, but now you seem all sad and woe-begone. To this, Bianca Bella replied, There is nothing amiss with me. It is only that I want to have taken into the garden two vessels, and of which one shall be filled with pure milk, and the other one of the finest war of roses. The mother answered, And why do you let yourself be troubled by so small a matter as this, my child? Do you not know that everything here belongs to you? Then the Marchioness caused to be brought to her two vessels, large and beautiful, filled the one with milk and the other with rose water, and had them carried into the garden. When the hour appointed by the serpent had come, Bianca Bella, without taking any other damsel to bear her company, repaired to the garden, and having opened the door thereof, she went in and made fast the entrance, and then seated herself upon the ground at the spot where the two vessels had been placed. Almost as soon as she sat down, the serpent appeared and came near her, and straightway commanded her to strip off all her clothes, 
and then, naked as she was, to step into the vessel, which was filled with milk. When she had done this, the serpent twined itself about her, thus bathing her body in every part with the white milk and licking her all over with his tongue. Ew. What? That's gross. The snake licking her all over with the tongue? I'm curious to say why it says his tongue. That might be a mispronounce because it's supposed to be his sister, but maybe the snake identifies as male. Maybe he transitioned. Possibly. It could be a T.S. snake. Where were we? Okay, yes. Licking her all over with his tongue, rendering her pure and perfect in every part where, peradventure, aught that was faulty might have been found. So the snake made her perfect, removed any flaws that she had. That weird. Next, having bid her come out of the vessel of milk, the serpent made her enter the one which was filled with rose water, whereupon all her limbs were scented with odors so sweet and restorative that she felt as if she were filled with fresh life. When the serpent bade her put on her clothes once more, giving her at the same time express command that she should hold her peace as to what had befallen her, and to speak no word, thereant even to her father and mother. For the serpent willed that no other woman in all the world should be found to equal Bianca Bella in beauty or in grace. And finally, after she had bestowed upon her very good quality, the serpent crept away to its hiding place. When this was done, Bianca Bella left the garden and returned to the palace. Her mother, when she perceived how her daughter had become more lovely and gracious than ever, and fairer than any other damsel in the world, was astonished beyond measure, and knew not what to say. Wherefore, she questioned the young girl as to what she had done to endue herself with such surpassing loveliness. But Bianca Bella had no answer to give her. Hereupon, the Marquinas took a comb and began to comb and dress her daughter's fair locks. And forthwith, from the girl's hair, there fell down pearls and all manner of precious stones. And when Bianca Bella went to wash her hands, roses and violets and lovely flowers of all sorts sprang up around them. And the odors which arose from these were so sweet that it seemed as if the place had indeed become an earthly paradise. Her mother, when she saw this marvel, ran to find Lamberco, her husband, and full of maternal pride, thus addressed him. My lord, heaven has bestowed upon us a daughter who is the sweetest, the loveliest, and the most exquisite work nature has ever produced. For besides the divine beauty and grace in her, which is manifest to all eyes, pearls and gems and all other kinds of precious stones fall from her hair. And to name something even yet more marvelous, round about her white hands spring up roses and violets and all manner of flowers, which give out the sweetest odors to all who may come near her to wonder at the sight. All this, I tell you, I assuredly would never have believed had I not looked thereon with my own eyes." Her husband, who was of an unbelievable nature, 
was at first disinclined to put faith in his wife's words and treated her speech as a subject of laughter and ridicule. But she went on plying him without ceasing with accounts of what she had witnessed, so that he determined to see for himself how the matter really stood. Then, having made them bring his daughter into his presence, he found about her even more marvelous things than his wife had described, and on account of what he saw, he rejoiced exceedingly, and in his pride swore a great oath that there was in the whole world no man worthy to be united to her in wedlock. Why is she ten, but her dad thinks she should get married at ten? Well, no, so they're saying, the dad is saying that there's nobody worthy of taking her in wedlock because she's so pretty. Okay. Very soon, the fame and glory of the supreme and immortal beauty of Bianca Bella began to spread itself through the whole world. And many kings and princes and nobles came together from all parts in order to win her love and favor. But she's ten! Yeah, they they did things young back then. You're 11 right now, right? You probably would either be engaged or married off already 500 years ago. But... What? But I'm 11. I know. They married early back then. You would have probably been dead by 35. Okay, then. Maybe older. But, yeah, girls would usually get married pretty young. Even in the original fairy tales, uh, Sleeping Beauty and all them were pretty young. They were like 12, 11 or 12. I know a girl in my class whose grandparents got married at 10. Her grandparents got married at 10? Yeah. Well, that's pretty uncommon even for the time when her grandparents would have been married. Mm. Okay, so where were we, kings and princes, uh, win her favor and have her to wife. But not one of these suitors was counted worthy to enjoy her, inasmuch as each one of them proved to be lacking in respect of one thing or another. But at last one day there came a wooing, Ferrandio, king of Naples, who by his prowess and by his illustrious name blazed out resplendent like the sun in the midst of the smaller luminaries, and having presented himself to the Marquis, demanded of him the hand of his daughter in marriage. The Marquis, seeing that the suitor was seemingly of countenance and well-knit in person and full of grace, besides being a prince of great power and possessions and wealth, gave his consent to the nuptials at once. And having summoned his daughter, without further parlaying, the two were betrothed by joining of hands and by kissing one another. How old is this man? I don't know, he's king, probably older. Let's say maybe he's in his 20s, hopefully. Yeah. That's illegal. Now it is, yes. But, ew. Well, and she didn't really have much say in it, did she? No. Her dad was like, all right, you get to marry her. I bet you would probably want more say in who you get to marry. Would you want me making the decision for you? No. Just some guy shows up at the house and he's like, I want to marry your daughter. 
How would you feel about that? I would say, no thanks, Dad. Scarcely were the rites of betrothal completed when Bianca Bella called back to mind the words which her sister Samaritana had so lovingly spoken to her, wherefore she withdrew herself from the presence of her spouse under the pretext that she had certain business of her own to see to, and having gone to her own chamber, made fast the door. Dada, mm-hmm. if I was 11, how old? Or if, I was, if you were 11? If I was 500 years ago, um, how old would the boy I married be? Uh, if you were 11? Yeah. Maybe he would be 11 too if you were marrying a prince, if it was a political union between you and another prince. Hopefully he was 11, but a lot of times young girls would be married off to older men. Ew. Are you glad you don't live 500 years ago? Okay, so she's sneaking, sneaking off. Uh, wherefore, she withdrew herself from the presence of her spouse under the pretext that she had certain business of her own to see to and having gone to her own chamber, made fast the door thereof from within, and then passed by a secret thoroughfare into the garden. When she had come into the garden, she began to call upon Samaratiana in a low voice. But the serpent no more manifested herself as heretofore, and Bianca Bella, when she perceived this, was mightily astonished. And after she had searched through every part of the garden without finding a trace of Samaritana, a deep grief fell upon her, for she knew that this thing had happened to her because she had not given due attention and obedience to the commands which her sister had laid upon her. Wherefore grieving and bewailing heavily on account of the mischance that had befallen her, she returned into her chamber, and having opened the door, she went to rejoin her spouse, who had been waiting a long time for her, and sat down beside him. When the marriage ceremonies were completed, Ferrandio led his bride away with him to Naples, where with sumptuous state and magnificent festivities and the sound of trumpets, they were welcomed by the whole city with the highest honor. It happened that there was living at Naples Ferrandio's stepmother, who had two daughters of her own, both of them deformed and ugly, but notwithstanding this, she had set her heart on marrying one of them to the king. But now, when all hope was taken from her of ever accomplishing this design of hers, her rage and anger against Bianca Bella became so savage that she could scarcely endure to look upon her. But so she. Who's this lady? Uh, the king's stepmom. So I guess it was the previous king's wife who. Was not, is not his mother. The previous king had probably married her and then died. So, so she used to be the queen. She wanted her, um, her daughters to marry their stepbrother. Yes. Oh. If I had a stepbrother, I would not want to marry him. Oh. Even though you weren't related to him whatsoever. Yeah. Just because he's your stepbrother. Yeah. Well. I wish I had a brother, but I wouldn't want to marry him. 
Okay. Because that would just be weird. Yeah, well, I'm glad that you don't have a brother you want to marry. <laughs> Should I keep going? Yeah. Okay, so she hated Bianca Bella, became so savage that she could scarcely endure the look upon her. But she was careful to conceal her animosity, feigning the while to hold Bianca Bella in all love and affection. Now, by a certain freak of fortune, the king of Tunis at this time began to set in array a mighty force of armed men for service by land and likewise on sea, in order that he might incite Ferrandio to make war. Whether he did this because Ferrandio had won Bianca Bella to wife, or for some other reason I know not. And at the head of a very powerful army, he had already passed the bounds of the Kingdom of Naples. On this account, it was necessary that Ferrandio should straightway take up arms for the defense of his realm, and hurry to the field to confront his foe. Therefore, having settled his affairs and made provision of all things necessary for Bianca Bella, she being now with child, he gave her over to the care of his stepmother and set forth with his army. Bianca Bella's pregnant? Yes, she is with child. That's how they said it back then. She was pregnant. But she's 10. She's probably a little older at this point. I'm sure they've been married for a bit. Probably 12. Oh. Okay. Is that better? Yeah, but... But... Yes? You don't have a baby at 12. You have a baby at 25 at least. These days, people have babies later. Back then, people had babies as soon as they could have babies. Think about it. If you didn't think you were going to live past 35 or 40... I mean, some people live older than that, but the average lifespan was a lot less. There's a lot more disease. Ew. What? Ew. Okay. Ferrandio had not long departed when this malevolent and forward-minded woman made a wicked design on Bianca Bella's life. And having summoned into her presence certain retainers who were entirely devoted to her, she charged them to conduct Bianca Bella with them to some place or other, feign that what they were doing was done for her recreation, and at that they should not leave her until they had taken her life. So the stepmom wants to kill her now? Yes. Well, the stepmom wanted to kill her for a long time. Oh, but she's gonna kill her now? Mm-hmm. But she wants proof because it says... Moreover, in order that she might be fully assured that they had discharged their duty, they were to bring back to her some sign of Bianca Bella's death. She wants evidence. These ruffians, prompt for any sort of ill-doing, at once prepared to carry out the demands of their mistress, and making pretense of conducting Bianca Bella to some place where she might recreate herself, They carried her away into a wood, and forthwith began to make preparation to kill her. But, when they perceived how lovely she was, and gracious, they were moved to pity, and had not the heart to take her life. So they cut off both her hands, and tore her eyes out of her head, 
and these they carried back to the stepmother as certain proofs that Bianca Bella had been killed by them. So she has no eyeballs now. No eyes, no hands, because she was so pretty that she didn't deserve to die. She just had deserved to have her hands cut off and her eyes gouged out. Okay, then. Okay, then? Yeah. <laughs> Is that, I mean, it's better than being dead, I suppose? Yeah. Yeah. Have a hand missing, and then because it's detached from your body, there's just a ring of hand starting to go. Mm-hmm. Well, she doesn't have any hands. Oh, well, the random hand that got cut off starts to go. Oh, yeah. And they close over. It's like the the spider hand thing from the Adams family. Yes, thing. Yeah. When this impious and cruel woman saw what they brought in their hands, her joy and satisfaction were unabounded. And scheming still in her wicked heart to carry out her nefarious designs, she spread through all the kingdom a report that both her own daughters were dead, the one of a continued fever and the other of an imposthume of the heart, which had caused her death by suffocation. Moreover, she went on to declare that Bianca Bella, disordered by grief at the king's departure, had miscarried of the child, and had likewise been seized with a Tyrrhenian fever, which had wasted her so completely that there was more cause to fear her death than to hope for her recovery. But the scheme of this wicked, cunning woman was to keep one of her own daughters in the king's bed maintaining the while that she was Bianca Bella, shrunken and distempered by the fever. Ferrandio, after he had attacked and put to rout the army of his foe, marched homeward in all the triumph of victory, hoping to find his beloved Bianca Bella full of joy and happiness. But in lieu of this, he found her, as he believed, lying in bed, shriveled, pale, and disfigured. Then he went up to the bed and gazed closely at her face and was overcome with astonishment when he looked upon the wreck she had become and could hardly persuade himself that the woman he saw there could really be Bianca Bella. Afterwards, he bade her attendants comb her hair and in place of the gems and the precious jewels which were wont to fall from the fair locks of his wife, there came forth great worms which had been feeding on the wretched woman's flesh and from the hands there came forth not the roses and the sweet smelling flowers which ever sprang up around bianca bella's but a foulness and filth which caused a nauseous sickness to all who came near her but the wicked old stepmother kept on speaking words of consolation to him declaring that all this distemper sprang from nothing else than the lengthened course of the ailment which possessed her. In the meantime, the ill-fated Bianca Bella, bereft of her hands and blind in both her eyes, was left alone in that solitary place, and finding herself in such cruel affliction, she called over and over again upon her sister Samaritiana beseeching her to come to her rescue. But no answer came to her except from the resounding voice of Echo, 
who cried aloud through all the places, and while the unhappy Bianca Bella was left in the agony of despair, conscious that she was cut off from all human aid, there came into the wood a venerable old man, kindly of aspect and no less kindly in his heart. And he, when he listened to the sad and mournful voice which smote upon his hearing, made his way step by step toward whence it came, and stopped when he found there a blind lady with her hands cut off, who was bitterly mourning the sad fate which had overtaken her. When the good old man looked upon her and saw how sad was her condition, he could not bear to leave her thus in this wilderness of broken trees and thorns and brambles, but overcome by the fatherly pity within him, he led her home with him to his house and gave her into the charge of his wife, commanding her very strictly to take good care of the sufferer. Then he turned towards his three daughters, who verily were as beautiful as three of the brightest stars of heaven, and exhorted them earnestly to keep her company, and to render to her continually all loving service she might require, and to take care that she wanted for nothing. But the wife, who had a hard heart and none of the old man's pity, was violently moved to anger by these words of her husband, and turning towards him, cried out, Husband, what would you have us do with this woman, all blind and maimed as she is? Doubtless she has been thus treated as a punishment for her sins and for no good behavior. In reply to this speech, the old man spake in an angry tone. You will carry out all the commands I give you. If you should do aught else, you need not look to see me here again. It happened that while the unhappy Bianca Bella was left in charge of the wife and the three daughters, conversing with them of various things, and meditating over her own great misfortune, she besought one of the maidens to do her a favor and comb her hair a little. But when the mother heard this, she was much angered, for as much as she would not allow either of her children to minister in any way to the unfortunate sufferer. But the daughter's heart was more given to pity than was her mother's, and moreover she called to mind what her father's commands had been, and was cautious of some subtle air of dignity and high breeding which seemed to emanate from Bianca Bella as a token of her lofty estate. So she straightway unfastened the apron from her waist, and having spread it on the floor beside Bianca Bella, began to comb her hair softly and carefully. Scarcely had she passed the comb thrice through the blonde tresses, before there fell out of them pearls and rubies and diamonds and all sorts of precious stones. Now the mother, when she saw what had happened, was seized with dread, and stood as one struck with amazement. Moreover, the great dislike which at first she had harbored towards Bianca Bella now gave way to a feeling of kindly affection. And when the old man had come back to the house, they all ran to embrace him, rejoicing him greatly over the stroke of good fortune which had come to deliver them from the bitter poverty which had hitherto oppressed them. Then Bianca Bella asked them to bring her a bucket of clear water and bade them wash 
there with her face and her maimed arms. And from these, while all were standing by, roses and violets and other flowers in great plenty fell down, whereupon they all deemed she must be some divine personage and no mortal woman. Bianca Bella must seem greedy if she's just, er, like, just, like, demanding, if she's just, like, get me a bucket of water. <laughs> so she's, you think that she's mean? You're just like, go give me a bucket of water now. I'm going to wash myself. Yeah. She's just like, get me a bucket of water. Okay, maybe she was just demonstrating what she could do because they found out about the jewels falling from her hair. Oh, maybe. But it's interesting that you think that she's demanding. Yeah. She, I need a bucket of water, damn it. Demanding because she's just randomly going, I need a bucket of water. Get me the bucket of water. Okay. Now, after a season, it came to pass that Bianca Bella felt a desire to return to the spot where first the old man had found her. But he and his wife and his daughters, seeing how great were the benefits they gathered from her presence, loaded her with endearments and besought her very earnestly that she would on no account depart from them, bringing forward many reasons why she should not carry out her wish. But she, having made up her mind on this point, determined at all hazards to go away, promising at the same time to return to them thereafter. The old man, when he saw how firmly she was set on her departure, took her with him without any further delay back to the place where he had come upon her. And when they had reached this spot, she gave directions to the old man that he should depart and leave her bidding him also to come back there when evening had fallen in order that she might return with him to his house. As soon as the old man had gone his way, the ill-fated Bianca Bella began to wander up and down the gloomy wood, calling loudly upon Samaritana so that her cries and lamentations rose up even to the high heavens. But Samaritana, though she was all the while nigh to her sister, and had never for one moment abandoned her, refused as yet to answer to her call. Whereupon the wretched Bianca Bella, deeming that she was scattering her words upon the heedless winds, cried out, Alas, what farther concern I have in this world, seeing that I have been bereft of my eyes and of my hands, and now at last all human help is denied to me. And as she thus spoke, there came upon her a sort of frenzy, which took away from her all hope of deliverance from her present evil case, and urged her, in despair, to lay hands upon her own life. But because there was at hand no means by which she could put an end to her miserable being, she found her way to a pool of water, which lay not far distance, in the mind there to drown herself. But when she had come to the shore of the pool and stood thereon ready to cast herself down into the water, there sounded in her ears a voice like thunder, saying, 
Alas, alas, wretched one, keep back from self-murder, nor desire to take your own life, which you ought to preserve for some better end. Whereupon Bianca Bella, alarmed by this mighty voice, felt as it were every one of her hair standing erect on her head, but after a moment it seemed to her that she knew the voice. So having plucked up a little courage, she said, Who are you who wander about these woods, proclaiming your presence to me by your kindly and pitiful words? Then the same voice replied, I am Samaritina, your sister, for whom you have been calling so long and painfully. And Bianca Bella, when she listened to these words, answered in a voice all broken by agonized sobs and said, Alas, my sister, come to my aid, I beseech you, and if at any past time I have shown myself disregardful of your counsel, I pray you to pardon me. Indeed, I have erred, and I confess my fault, but misdeed was the fruit of my ignorance, and not of my wickedness. For be sure, if it had come from wickedness, divine justice would not have suffered me, as the author of it, so long to cumber the earth. Samaritana, when she heard her sister's woes, set forth in this pitiful story and witnessed the cruel wrongs that had been done her, spake some comforting words, and then, having gathered divers medicinal herbs of wonderful power and virtue, she spread these over the place where Bianca Bella's eyes had been. Then she brought to her sister two hands, and having joined these onto the wounded wrists, at once made them whole and sound again. And when she had wrought this marvelous feat, Samaritana threw off from herself the scaly skin of the serpent and stood revealed as a maiden of lovely aspect. Where did the snake get two new hands? I don't know. I guess maybe she just had hands out in the woods somewhere waiting for her sister. Hands randomly lie around in the woods? In fairy tales, they do. Somehow she had two new hands ready to give. Huh. Where did the hands in the woods come from? A hand plant. Is that where I got my hands when I was born? No, your, your hands came pre-installed. So they're natural hands? You have natural hands, yes. Okay, then. That's kind of weird, but okay. So now her sister's a girl? Yeah, her, her sister turned into a girl. She's no longer a snake. So she's human. Yes. That's good because I would much rather have a human sister than a snake sister. I'm sure most people would agree with you on that. Yeah. The sun had already begun to veil its glittering rays, and the evening shadows were creeping round when the old man, with anxious hasty steps, returned to the wood, where he found Bianca Bella sitting beside a maiden well nigh as lovely as herself. And he gazed steadily into her beautitious face, standing the while like a man struck with wonder, and could scarcely believe it was Bianca Bella he looked upon. But when he was sure it was really she, he cried, My daughter, were you not this morning blind and bereft of your hands? How comes it that you have been thus speedily made whole again? Bianca Bella answered him, 
My cure has worked, not by anything I myself have done, but by the virtue and the kind ministering of this my dear sister who sits beside me. So was that her dad that said that or her husband who said that? The, the old man that she's been living with, the one that found her when she was blind and handless wandering around the woods. Why did he call her daughter? Maybe he feels fatherly towards her. Oh, okay. Whereupon both the sisters arose from the place where they were seated, and rejoicing greatly, they went together with the old man to his house, where the wife and the three daughters gave them a most loving and hospitable welcome. It came to pass, after the lapse of many days, that Samaritana and Biancabella and the old man with his wife and his three daughters left their cottage and betook themselves to the city of Naples, purposing to dwell there, and, when they had entered the city, they chanced to come upon a vacant space hard by the palace of the king, where they determined to make their resting place. And when the dark night had fallen around them, Samaritana took in her hand a twig of laurel and thrice struck the earth therewith, uttering certain mystic words the while, and almost before the sound of these words had ceased, there sprang up forthwith before them a palace, the most beautiful and sumptuous that ever was seen. The next morning, Ferrandio the king went early to look out of the window, and when he beheld the rich and marvelous palace standing where there had been nothing the night before, he was altogether overcome with amazement, and called his wife and his stepmother to come and see it, but these were greatly disturbed in mind at the sight thereof, for a boding came upon them that some ill was about to befall them. Why is there suddenly a house? Me next to the castle? Yeah. Fairy tale. If you, would you be more surprised if you woke up and there was a house next to ours that hadn't been there before and it was just a huge palace? Yeah, I would go up to the door and be like, Hey, you new around here? Well, go live in my house. This is my <laughs> house now. It's to force the neighbors, the new neighbors at their house? Yeah, because they just um, stole our backyard with a palace. Yeah, I guess. If there was a, suddenly a palace in our backyard, I would be quite surprised. Yeah, I would just be like, hey. Get out of your house. Go live in my house. This is my house now. So what you're saying is that we should just do a home invasion? Yeah. Where we just go over to the new neighbors and be like, get the, get the hell out of your house. We're taking over. Yeah. And then uh, they'd pack up their stuff and move into our house. Well, they probably already have all their stuff packed up if they were, if they had just moved. So it would be perfect. Okay, well, remind me never to move in next door to you. Okay. While Ferrandio was standing, scanning closely the palace before him and examining it in all parts, he lifted his eyes to a certain window, and there, in the chamber inside, he beheld two ladies of a beauty more rich and dazzling than the sun. And no sooner had his eyes fallen upon them than he felt a tempest of passion rising in his heart for he assuredly recognized in one of them some similitude of that loveliness which had once been Bianca Bella's. And when he asked who they were and from what land they had come, 
the answer which was given him was that they were two ladies who had been exiled from their home and that they had journeyed from Persia with all their possessions to take up their abode in the noble city of Naples. When he heard this, Ferrandio sent a messenger to inquire whether he would be doing them any pleasure in waiting upon them, accompanied by the ladies of his court, to pay them a visit of welcome, and to this gracious message they sent an answer, saying that it would indeed be a very precious honor to be thus visited by him, but that it would be more decorous and respectful if they, as subjects, should pay this duty to him, than that he, as lord and king, should visit them. Hereupon Ferrandio bade them summon the queen and the other ladies of the court, and with these, although at first they refused to go, being so greatly in fear of their impending ruin, he betook himself to the palace of the two ladies, who with all friendly signs of welcome and with modest bearing gave him the reception due to a highly honored guest showing him the wide Logias and the roomy halls and the richly ornamented chambers, the walls of which were lined with alabaster and fine porphyry, while about them were to be seen on all sides carved figures which looked like life. And when they had exhibited to the king all parts of this sumptuous palace, the two fair young women approached Ferrandio and besought him most gracefully that he would deign to come one day with his queen and dine at their table. The king, whose heart was not hard enough to remain unaffected by all he had seen, and who was gifted, moreover, with a magnanimous and liberal spirit, graciously accepted the invitation. And when he had tendered his thanks to the two ladies for the noble welcome they had given him, he and the queen departed together and returned to their own palace. When the day fixed for the banquet had come, the king and the queen and the stepmother clad in their royal robes and accompanied by some of the ladies of the court went to do honor to the magnificent feast set out in the most sumptuous fashion. And after he had given them water to wash their hands, the seneschal bade them conduct the king and queen to a table apart, set somewhat higher, but at the same time near to the others. And having done this, he caused all the rest of the guests to seat themselves according to their rank. And in this fashion, they all feasted merrily and joyfully together. When the stately feast had come to an end and the tables had been cleared, Samaritana rose from her seat, and turning towards the king and the queen, spake thus, Your majesties, in order that the time may not be irksome to us, as it may if we sit here idle, let one or another of us propose something on the way of diversion which will let us pass the day pleasantly. And when the guests heard what Samaritana said, they all agreed that she had spoken well, but yet there was found no one bold enough to make such a proposition as she had called for. Whereupon Samaritana, when she perceived they were all silent, went on. Since it appears that no one of this company is prepared to put forth anything, I, with your majesty's leave, would bid come hither one of our own maidens, whose singing perchance will give you no little pleasure. And having summoned the damsel, whose name was Silveria, into the banquet room, 
Samaritana commanded her to take a lyre in her hand and to sing thereto something in honor of the king, which should be worthy of their praise. And the damsel, obedient to her lady's command, took her lyre, and having placed herself before the king, sang in a soft and pleasant voice, while she touched the resounding strings with the plectrum, telling in her chant the story of Bianca Bella from beginning to end, but not mentioning her by name. When the whole of the story had been set forth, Samaritana again rose to her feet and demanded of the king what would be the fitting punishment, what torture would be cruel enough for those who had put their hands to such an execrable crime. Then the stepmother, who deemed that she might perchance get a release for her misdeeds by a prompt and ready reply, did not wait for the king to give his answer, but cried out in a bold and confident tone, Surely to be cast into a furnace heated red-hot would be but a light punishment for the offenses of such a one. So toss her into a red-hot furnace. Mm-hmm. That's what I would do to someone who tried to kill me. I'm just like, you tried to kill me! For that, you get killed! Yeats in the furnace. <laughs> That's the noise you would make? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> then Samaritana, with her countenance all afire with vengeance and anger, made answer to her, Thou thyself art the very same guilty and barbarous woman, through whose nefarious working all of these cruel wrongs have been done. And thou, wicked and accursed one, hast condemned thyself to a righteous penalty out of thine own mouth. Then Samaritana, turning towards the king with a look of joy upon her face, said to him, Behold, this is your Bianca Bella. This is the wife you loved so dearly. This is she without whom you could not live. Then, to prove the truth of her words, Samaritana gave the word to the three daughters of the old man that they should forthwith, in the presence of the king, begin to comb Bianca Bella's fair and wavy hair. And scarcely had they begun when, as has been told before, there fell out of her tresses many very precious and exquisite jewels, and from her hands came forth roses, exiling the sweet scents of morning and all manner of odoriferous flowers. And for yet greater certainty, she pointed out to the king how the snow-white neck of Bianca Bella was encircled by the fine chain of the most delicately wrought gold, which grew naturally between the skin and the flesh and shone out as though the clearest crystal. When the king perceived by these manifest and convincing signs that she was indeed his own Bianca Bella, he began to weep for the joy he felt and to embrace her tenderly. But before he left that place, he caused to be heated hot a furnace, and into this he bade them cast the stepmother and her two daughters. Thus, their repentance for their crimes came too late, and they made a miserable end to their lives. And after this, the three daughters of the old man were given 
honorably in marriage, and the king Ferrandio with Bianca Bella and Samaritana lived long and happily, and when Ferrandio died, his son succeeded to his kingdom. The end. Huh. Well, that wasn't too messed up except for the fact that a king married an underaged woman! Or not mm-hmm. woman, because she's not full grown. She's young. She was still a girl? Yeah. So that was the most messed up part of the story, you thought? Yeah. Is that he married a 10-year-old? Yeah. What about her sister, that she was there the whole time but was letting her anguish? Yeah. And that the people cut her hands off and gouged out her eyes? Yeah, but it wasn't that just a normal thing that happened back then? People just going around cutting off people's hands and eyes? No, I don't think that was quite normal. Oh. They wouldn't have been able to get much done had people not had all their hands and eyes because there were just random folks going around (laughs) gouging out eyes and cutting off hands. Oh, well, that just seems like a normal thing that would happen back then. Of course. Yeah, because people did weird things back then, like marrying underage people. So that's the part of the story that you disliked the most? Yeah, is marrying underage people. Note taken. Yeah. Okay. Well, it's bedtime. Okay. Ready to get tucked in? Yeah, I'm very tired. That was a long story. It was a long story. Okay, here, let me tuck you in. Okay. It's very hot tonight, though, so I want to eat blankets. Okay. There we go. Good night, my dear. I love you. I love you, too, Dada. Good night. Thank you for listening to... The Dirty Talk podcast written and produced by my dad, Chris, and co-hosted by my auntie, Ray Ray. You can follow it on all social media channels and find it wherever podcasts can be found. If you could be so kind to help support them on Patreon to make future episodes possible, that would be great. Or it would be great if you could help out by rating it and recommending it to your friends. And a special thank you to our honorary producers, Rolf Hansen and his wives. Oh, and a shout out to my best friend, Ashley. Bye-bye.